I remember when I first came here, we had this big pulpit up on the platform. It was about that wide, and I constantly had to walk around it. So I don't like things in the way between me and you. <laughs> and so I was always stepping around it. So we got rid of that, and we're down to a music stand. But occasionally the microphone <laughs> just bothers me. It's in the way, so I have to get rid of that as well. Um, we have uh, been looking at Isaiah 10 chapters at a time. And I, I want to remind you, uh, I may sound like a broken record, but it's important uh, that I remind you that this is not how the book of Isaiah is naturally divided according to topics and themes. We're taking it in ten chapter uh, chunks, but uh, oftentimes those natural divisions occur uh, in the middle of those chapters, or in this case, uh, right toward the end. And so I'm going to be focusing this morning on the 40th chapter. That's the heart of the message that I want to bring. And it's kind of a, a, a new leaf being turned uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah. I'll say more about that in a moment, but I just want to um, touch on a few uh, high spots in the preceding chapters. Uh, speaking of a broken record, um, chapter 31 uh, begins by saying, don't go to Egypt. Have you heard that before? Uh, those first uh, first 39 chapters uh, seem like God is repeatedly saying to them, don't go to Egypt. And uh, Egypt is not only a physical location for uh, the Israelites and for the nation of Judah, uh, but Egypt represents a dependence upon human beings. It's a dependence upon uh, man's uh, flesh and uh, the arm and the strength of humanity. And God is saying to His people, don't trust people to be your support, to be your deliverance, to be your strength. Look to Me. Put your hope and trust in Me. And He says, Egypt uh, can vanish in the blink of an eye. And in fact, uh, Egypt was overtaken by Assyria not long after um, those prophecies. And most of those early chapters deal with God's prophecy about the, the punishment that is coming through Assyria uh, by virtue of their own sinfulness and their rebellion. But God also reminds them that He is the God of the nations, that they are under His control, and that Assyria can also vanish in the blink of an eye. And uh, at one point, as we uh, have read these ten chapters, you may recall that uh, as Hezekiah cried out to God uh, and put his trust in the Lord, 180,000 of the Assyrian troops died 
overnight. They woke up in the morning and 180,000 of them were dead. And uh, it was like, what happened? I mean, there was no battle. And Tiglath-Pileser, who was the, the head of that uh, campaign, uh, and his army returned back toward Assyria, uh, only for him to eventually be murdered by two of his own sons. And again, the, all the things that Israel feared uh, just vanished overnight, as it were. Uh, God is constantly reminding us, His people, that He is the one that is in charge and in control. Speaking of Hezekiah, in the middle of those these ten chapters, Hezekiah uh, is that uh, famous passage where he becomes uh, sick, deathly ill, and uh, he is told that he's uh, going to die from the illness that he has. Apparently he had some kind of boil on his skin, and uh, I guess today uh, we would say that he was going into septic shock or something of that nature. And uh, he was about to die, and he turns his face to the wall and cries out uh, for God's uh, deliverance and help and pleads for some more time. And God heals him and gives him more time. It turns out that wasn't such a great thing for Hezekiah in many respects, because not long after that, uh, he shows what turned out to be his very enemies, uh, everything in the kingdom, all the treasures of the temple and all the treasures of the kingdom and all the palace and uh, all he did was whet the appetite of his enemies uh, to overtake him and uh, you say what what was that all about but these are some of the high spots of those uh, preceding chapters coming up to chapter 40 but when we get to chapter 40 a corner is being turned in the prophecy of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters deal with uh, the, the sin of Israel and Judah and God's judgment that is coming upon them. But as we come into the latter portion of the book, we find that the prophecies begin to take the form of hope and deliverance and the return uh, or, or the coming of Messiah. And so uh, in these last chapters, there are many, many messianic prophecies that refer to when Jesus comes to bring deliverance. And in fact, in chapter 40, if you read it closely you find that it's speaking uh, of the second coming of Christ because of the nature of that. We'll look at that as we read some of the verses. But it's uh, speaking about the second coming of Christ. And one of the outstanding verses in chapter 40 is verse 8 where the scripture says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Oftentimes that verse is quoted 
in terms of kind of a global statement of all of the Bible. And certainly, it's true of all of the Bible. Uh, every word that God has spoken, as Jesus said, not one uh, comma or period will disappear until everything that has been said will be completed. But in Isaiah chapter 40, this verse is specifically referring to God's covenant with Israel slash Judah. And, and pardon me for using both terms because Judah is that southern kingdom that outlasted the northern kingdom by, by uh, quite a while. But nonetheless, it is the the stock of Israel. It's, it's the background of Israel. And so even though Judah is the specific uh, kingdom that Isaiah is speaking to, it incorporates in the New Testament, as we look at it, all of, uh, all of Israel. And God has made a covenant with Israel. And His covenant is that He will sustain them and bless them, and through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed, and that he will never forsake his people. This is his promise to them. And so Isaiah is reminding them that the people are like grass, and like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. People come and go. Kings come and go. Nations come and go. Uh, all of the uh, characteristics of the earth come and go. But the Word of God abides forever. It will never be broken. It will never fail. It will last eternally. And even though people pass from the scene and even though it looks like everything has become hopeless and Judah is carried captive to Babylon and all of these things have occurred God's promises will be fulfilled he will not abandon his people and so his word abides forever uh, it's so important that we recognize that, that our God is a covenant-keeping God and that He can be trusted no matter how your life looks today, no matter how difficult things may become. God's Word is trustworthy. And even though we may suffer for a time, God will see us through and He will bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. Do you know that for certain? As you sit here this morning, are you absolutely persuaded that the moment you leave this earthly body and this life, you will be in the presence of the eternal God and our Lord Jesus Christ forever and beyond harm. God has promised to see us all the way through and to bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. And so chapter 40 begins by saying, Comfort, O comfort, 
my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. That's why I'm saying this is a prophetic statement about the return of Jesus Christ. We view it as a return. The Jews are still looking for his first coming those who are orthodox and believe the scriptures. They're still looking for their Messiah, but we know that this will be his second coming. And what it says is that all flesh will see that coming together. They will see the the transformation of Judah and of the land of Israel. And a voice calls out, and he answers, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And then Isaiah prophesies, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might and his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. How is Jesus going to come back? Have you read that in Revelation? Are you familiar with his return? That uh, one day a trumpet's going to sound. One day the dead in Christ are going to rise to, to meet him in the air. One day our Lord Jesus is going to come as the mighty conqueror, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And uh, his faithful will come with him and he will bring them back. The Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. His reward is with him. For what has he shed his blood for whom has he shed his blood we are his reward he has purchased us with his own blood we belong to him and when he returns we will return with him in glory and and in power as jesus establishes his kingdom this is the promise of the future And his recompense will be before him like a shepherd. He will tend his flock in his arms. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will lead gently the nursing ewes. Look at the contrast that is there. If you take the historical setting, 
all the nations of the earth have gathered against Jerusalem to destroy God's people. And then Jesus burst forth in the last hour, as Zechariah says. It's right at the time, the crucial moment, when the nations are about to annihilate Israel, that the Lord Jesus Christ appears and He obliterates the nations. He fights the battle for them. He comes with might and strength and power. But for His own people, He is like a shepherd. Tender and compassionate and loving. He gathers them in His arms. The, the character of our Lord Jesus... We catch a glimpse of that in the temple when he went toward the end of his ministry and found the money changers there who had made a mockery of the, the temple and of the place of worship and they were carrying on commerce and uh, trying to swindle everybody. I mean, that's kind of how they did business and uh, there's haggling and uh, it's like a marketplace. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And we catch a glimpse of, of Jesus' might and power as he throws over the tables of the money changers. And with a whip, he drives them out of that outer court. And they flee, really, in terror. I think uh, this was not just Jesus the man uh, standing against this crowd uh, of uh, merchants, but it was the Son of God who was bringing a foretaste of God's wrath upon them. And they fled. They left the area. And he said, you've made my father's house uh, a den of thieves instead of a place of prayer. And yet, the other side of Jesus is, is the tender, compassionate, sensitive let the little children come to me. And, and don't hold them back. Let them come to me. For, for this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, these little children. Here is this great contrast between the mighty warrior and the tender shepherd. And fortunately, we're on the side of the tender shepherd. Why is God able to keep His Word? That's a good question, isn't it? You know, when people make promises to you, they can have all good intentions. I can remember a transition time in my uh, pastoral ministry when I was uh, a young pastor. I made promises to people, and I would move heaven and earth to keep those promises. I'll come see you. I was there. Uh, whatever it was, I'll do this for you. I did it. Well, simple math tells you that if you keep making those kind of commitments, 
you're going to overload eventually. I think sometimes my children got frustrated with me because I would, uh, they would ask me, can we do so and so? And I would say, uh, I'll give it my best effort. That wasn't satisfying. But I began to learn that it was not a good plan for me to say, I will. Because sometimes I couldn't. Sometimes things got in the way. Sometimes I got overloaded and overwhelmed. You can, people can have car accidents. They can be taken ill. They can have other kinds of problems that keep them from keeping their commitments. And I particularly feel terrible when I can't keep a commitment. But I have learned through the years not to make too many of them, uh, at least not in uncertain ter- or, or, or certain terms. You know, I will do this. Well, I understand the statement, the Lord willing, <laughs> because uh, I will the Lord willing. And other than that, I can't make too many guarantees. I am but a human being. People can make commitments and they can fail. You can be promised all kind of uh, income and benefits from your retirement account. And then the market crashes. Remember the last time that happened profoundly, and I had people saying to me, I, I had planned to retire, and I'm going to have to work another 10 years. Um, because they lost, I, I remember one fellow lamenting that he had lost almost $200,000 in the market. It had nearly wiped out his retirement. And he was discouraged. Wall Street can't make you any promises. You can work for a company that, through no fault of their own, may go bankrupt tomorrow and find yourself without a job. There are so many reasons why the circumstances and people of the earth cannot keep their commitments. And we're somewhat used to that. I I think perhaps we've grown accustomed to the fact that we cannot absolutely rely on hopeful things. So how is God different? What makes Him able to keep His Word? According to verses 12 to 14, He is both the Creator and the Lord of creation. He's the one who made everything in this world. In fact, uh, listen to some of the statements that He makes. He marks out the heavens by the span. You know what a span is? It's the difference, the distance between the end of your thumb and the end of your little finger. Can you imagine measuring the heavens 
with this size measurement. How long would that take you? He has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. Here's the fellow sitting there with uh, uh, wheat or barley or something in the market, and he's got these scales, and he uh, takes a dipper and puts it on the scale and puts the weight. And Can you imagine tackling a mountain like that, the dust of the earth? That's amazing. He weighs the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as His Counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult and who gave Him understanding? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? Our God knows everything about everything. He does not need anyone to teach him anything. He does not open a textbook to learn physics. He made physics. He doesn't have to figure out math. He designed math. That's why I encourage students, talk to the Lord and ask for His help. He knows all about this stuff. He knows chemistry. He put it all together. He knows everything about everything. There's nothing that he needs counsel for. He doesn't need, he doesn't ever come with a question that he cannot figure out and has to go see a counselor. Secondly, he is the sovereign ruler of the nations. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Go back to those scales and put just one tiny grain of dirt there. That's how impressive the nations are to God. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Lebanon was known for its cedars, a whole forest full of trees. Not enough for him to have a fire. Couldn't even cook a marshmallow over it. Our God is so powerful, nor its beast for a burnt offering. All the nations are like nothing before Him. They're regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. He is the supreme ruler of all humanity. To whom will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith placed it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. One who's too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that doesn't rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. <laughs> the silliness of idolatry, the foolishness. You know, we look at people who make idols out of gold and silver and wood and, and, and we laugh at them and we call them pagans and heathen and, and foolish. What are your idols? What have you created in which you put your hope? Have you established your home and you are 
grateful uh, that you have built for yourself a place of refuge and safety. And your hope and trust is there until the tornado comes through. Our hope has to be in the Lord. It cannot be in things. He is omnipotent. Therefore, He's able to do whatever He chooses. Verse 25, To whom will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One. He is omniscient. Lift up your eyes on high and see the One who's created the stars and leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Not one of them is missing. Verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him that lacks might. He increases power. Our God is omnipotent. He has all power. He can, he can keep His promises because He has all power to enforce them. He is omniscient and knows everything there is to know, and so there's nothing that will ever take Him by surprise. He's not going to be shocked at what comes into your life. Oh my goodness, did God know about this? Yes, He knew about it before you were born. He is trustworthy and reliable and He knows all about you. He knows your inner thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows everything that's going on in your life. And He is tireless and never weary. Last weekend was Jonathan's birthday, and so I drove up yesterday to take him to lunch and spend some time with him in Milwaukee, and um, I have a hard time reading after lunch, much less driving home, and uh, I got really, really tired on my way home, and decided that it was a better part of wisdom for me to stop and get a cup of coffee and rest my eyes and just relax a bit because I couldn't go on until I had had a little bit of rest. You'll never catch God too tired to come to your aid. You'll never catch Him behind time because He had to stop for a nap. God is never weary. He is never tired. And he says in verse 30, Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those that wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Are you weary today? Are you tired? Is there something 
weighing you down? What is the solution? In 1965, I was just a few months shy of 12 years old. It was June, and it was the culmination of a long year of difficult health. I had had a whole series of strep throats in the fall of the year. Every other week I was sick with strep. And my doctor, who was a very wise uh, fellow, um, decided that he had better explore and see if there were any uh, other uh, secondary problems to that. And so he wanted to make sure I had not suffered any damage to my heart valves as a consequence of the strep. And in the process of doing so, he discovered that I had a blockage in my aorta. First time in my life I'd ever had my blood pressure taken around my thigh. That was a little odd. But he was measuring the difference between my arms and my legs and found that my blood pressure in my legs was quite low compared to the blood pressure in my arms, which was quite high. And so I had been to the University of Florida Medical Center and gone one place and another and finally ended up with a team of surgeons at Tampa General Hospital who said that uh, they had to go and open the aorta up or uh, my lifespan would be cut dramatically short. And all of a sudden, that made a lot of sense to problems I had been having as a child. I know everybody's excited about something going on, some game or something. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and I know that uh, some of you laugh at me because I'm not a sports nut. <laughs> Did I say nut? Well, maybe... <laughs> Maybe that's not the best uh, way to describe that. But, but there's a reason for that. When I was uh, a youngster, I wanted to play ball, but I would go down the street with my brother and the other kids in the neighborhood and get up a sandlot game, and I'd last about 15 or 20 minutes, and then my legs hurt, and I had to go home. And at night I had terrible leg cramps and difficulty sleeping. And I was limited in all physical activities. As a consequence, I didn't play sports. I, I don't know if uh, my temperament would have been the same otherwise, but I did things I could do sitting down. Uh, you know, I painted, I played an instrument, I... Uh, Read. I did things that I didn't have to use my legs for because they were weak and weary and tired, and I couldn't do much with them. Everybody kept saying, you just have growing pains, but nobody else seemed to have those kind of growing pains. And so the ultimate problem was uncovered, and I didn't have good blood flow to my legs. And so I was facing my first heart surgery, not quite 12 years old. 
My dad had taken me with him to Washington and New York. He was the sponsor of high school senior trips for the railroad, and he would uh, set up the schedule and take seniors uh, as the uh, railroad representative to all the things you can see in Washington and New York. And he took me with him uh, early uh, that year into May, first part of June, it was kind of unspoken, but it was they wanted me to be able to have that experience in case I did not survive the surgery. Uh, surgery like that in 1965 was relatively new. And so I came back and I was facing the operation and I said I was asking God for a word because I was fearful. It was frightening to contemplate that. And I was praying and asking God for a word, and this went on for several days. Lord, give me something to hang on to. Give me a, a verse. Don't underestimate, by the way, what 11-year-olds can think or do, or 6-year-olds or 8-year-olds. Sometimes we think, well, they're just kids. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, yes, they're kids, but there's plenty going on inside. And I was seeking God for some answers, and God led me to Isaiah 40. And to these verses, He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God gave me a promise. And with the promise, He gave me peace. The day of my surgery arrived and I had my Bible open to this passage and I didn't want to give it up. So, hospital gown and Bible went to surgery. <laughs> and I can remember being in the hall outside of the operating room lying on the gurney and I had my Bible on my chest. And a nurse came to me and, and she said... Uh, does that give you comfort? And I said, yeah, it does. She said, would you like me to read something to you from it? And I said, yes, read this passage I'm open to. And she read Isaiah 40 to me. Very, very special and powerful verse. I wonder this morning, are you in a place of great fear? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. Do you feel like you're all alone in a situation? God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Are you tired and weary and feel like you can't go on? God has promised to give strength to those who are weak, 
The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so the limb which is put out of joint can be healed. How do we do that? Wait upon the Lord. Rest in Him. Bring your need to Him. Look to Him for grace and support. And trust Him to care for you. God is faithful. He will not abandon you. He will see you through. And He has always been faithful to do that. Oh, sometimes I forget and I get fretful. But when I am reminded of this passage, there is great strength and hope for those who rest in the Lord. And He is able to keep His word.